Hello, I'm Janet Silver from Syntax Strategic. And I'm Cameron Groom from Microbics Biosystems. Thanks for joining us for Diagnostics Beyond the Lab. On this podcast, we talk to industry leaders in the scientific and health community about discoveries, challenges, and what they see as the way forward in their field. And Cameron, today we're going to talk about the importance of ensuring a high standard of accuracy and reliability for the work that goes on inside the laboratory and beyond. Absolutely. And for full disclosure, uh, Microbics provides quality assessment products to support testing accuracy. And our guests on today's podcast are customers. Um, Now, joining us from Michigan in the United States is Danielle Casey of the American Proficiency Institute, also known as API, which offers high quality proficiency testing services, or PT, in the United States. Joining us from Helsinki, Finland, is Heidi Berghall, R&D Manager for Lab Quality that provides quality services, including external quality assessment, commonly called EQA, and serving customers in over 60 countries. And finally, from British Columbia, Canada, we're joined by Daniel Taylor, the CEO and founder of One World Accuracy, which provides EQA, particularly to developing nations. And uh, Danielle, let's begin with you. First of all, can you tell us a bit about API and what is EQA, External Quality Assessment, also uh, sometimes referred to as PT or proficiency testing? So API was created in 1991. We began by offering proficiency testing to physician office laboratories. Over the years, we've expanded our clientele to include large hospitals and reference laboratories while still providing services to the physician office sector. We actually provide proficiency testing for all areas of the clinical laboratory and currently work with over 20,000 laboratories. So what is proficiency testing? It's the testing of unknown samples to evaluate accuracy. Most sets of proficiency testing samples are sent to participating laboratories on a scheduled basis, usually three times a year. A proficiency testing program sends the samples to the laboratory for analysis. They report the results back to the PT program, and then the program grades the results using specified grading criteria and provides the laboratory with its scores. So then governmental and accreditation organizations routinely monitor these laboratories' performance. Heidi, I just want to turn now to the European Union because we've just had a bit of an overview of the United States. How important is EQA in the context of the European Union and what would happen if this did not exist? Well, as for in the U.S., EQA is very important for improving and maintaining the quality in clinical laboratories in the EU and in Europe. Uh, Each country has its own legislation and its own quality guidelines when it comes to QC procedures. And uh, actually different organizations might have somewhat different views on if EQA should be used for improving quality or for controlling the minimum performance limits. But uh, I would say that common for all countries is the ISO 15189 standard, which uh, most, at least the large laboratories are accredited against. And this standard, it was just updated last year, and it states that uh, a laboratory shall have a procedure uh, for monitoring the validity of their results and that they should monitor their performance of examination methods 
by comparison with results from other laboratories. And it includes participation in EQA programs when available. And it also includes point of care testing methods. And uh, I think one point uh, that is very good in the updated version of the standard is that it points out that the EQA samples should be handled by personnel who routinely performs analysis and also that the EQA program selected should preferably check the whole examination process. So that is including the pre and post analytical phases in addition to the examination itself. And this is something we at Lab Quality, we have put a lot of focus on in the last, let's say 10 years or so. So our, uh, as EQA providers, our job is to offer EQA schemes that are clinically relevant and this means that we should use samples that mimic patient samples as well as possible, and that we provide schemes that cover the complete analytical process, including the phases outside the laboratory measurement process, such as the pre-analytical phase with sampling and transport of samples, etc. And so uh, I think you asked what would happen if EQA didn't exist, and, and this takes me to the importance of of both routinely performed internal quality controls and participation in EQA schemes and to the fact that these two complement each other. So I would say it's not enough to perform one or the other, but you should really perform both. Thank you, Heidi. That's that's great. I think the, the emphasis on whole process and drilling down as to you know, what's the root cause and, and remedi remediation, corrective actions and preventative actions for these are incredibly important. Um, before we bring in Dan, though, I'd, I'd like to ask um, you, Heidi, and, and Danielle, to maybe expand a bit on um, how point of care fits in with this. It's, it's such a topic that is uh, emerging in our industry, uh, but it seems to have more questions around how EQA or PT relate to point of care testing. Yeah, so I think it's really important to define first what point of care testing is. And so it's actually the analytical testing performed outside of the clinical laboratory, such as in remote locations at the bedside of a patient in a critical care unit, the primary physician office, or even a pharmacy. So point of care testing is typically performed by personnel who are not primarily trained in clinical laboratory sciences, meaning these are respiratory therapists or nurses or even physicians. Most point of care testing is considered waived complexity, meaning that the testing is supposed to be simple, incorporating methodologies that are so easy and accurate, it's unlikely that mistakes would occur. Since most point of care testing is considered waived, it doesn't actually fall under clear regulations to be required to do proficiency testing. Some facilities will actually still perform proficiency testing as it's considered good laboratory practice to ensure quality, evaluate method and instrument uh, accuracy, and a way to educate and monitor staff competency. But many facilities still won't do this, and it could lead to serious harm for patients if testing is performed incorrectly and inaccurate results are used to guide treatment. Well, we see also that not many point-of-care testing sites are, for example, accredited, and, and not many countries have regulations or even guidelines for the quality processes of point-of-care testing, which which I think it's uh, quite peculiar, actually, because, uh, like Daniel said, that these tests are often used uh, outside the laboratories by personnel who don't have the, uh, the or they are not laboratory professionals, and, and the results are used for important clinical decision-making. So... So it's, of course, very important that the results are reliable. And, 
we see a huge variation in the interest and willingness to participate in EQA among point of care users. Uh, we are based in Finland, so so I thought I would could use uh, Finland as an example of a country where participation in EQA schemes is partly voluntary and partly mandatory. So to perform microbiological testing, a license is always required, and each test site must have a supervising microbiology laboratory. And as one part of this regulation system is that it is required that each testing site, no matter if it's small or large, they must participate in EQA for each tested analyte at least four times a year whenever EQA is available. Then on the other hand, for clinical chemistry, it's not regulated in this matter. Uh, I would say that even more important than having mandatory EQA is the quality education for point-of-care users. Because I believe that if you understand why you should participate and what the benefits are, this is usually what motivates people to participate in EQA. And uh, I would like to believe that motivation and understanding EQA can give a better outcome as compared to mandatory EQA. However, uh, there are still many obstacles to overcome before we reach this point. And, and therefore, I do see benefits also in EQA being mandatory for point-of-care users. So it, it can't be forgotten or ignored. Very good. Well, I think this is a great moment to bring in Dan Taylor, uh, speaking about the relevance of, of point of care and um, education in EQA. A lot of your work, Dan, is done in developing nations, and um, I welcome your perspectives on these matters. I agree with Heidi and Danielle that there are, you know, it's important in a point of care setting, but there are unique challenges. So, from a, a public health, we take a public health perspective and ask, what will it take to achieve quality-assured test results for every patient test that's ever done? And there, we have all of the pieces, and, and we need to assemble them in a way to make them sustainable. Now, most countries, almost every country, in fact, I can't think of an exception, fund their own diagnostics. So they're paying for their own diagnostic infrastructure. The quality of the output has a direct impact on their healthcare budgets. So a good test result that you would describe in colloquially as accurate and reliable, okay, has a number of benefits. We all we can all agree on those. Now the question is, how should how should quality be organized in a country? So we take our position of running national accredited EQA programs in Canada in the United States through a, an American affiliate, um, in Italy through a subsidiary, in Nigeria through a subsidiary. And we say, how can we make EQA sustainable to improve public health in a country and then by definition globally? And, and so some of the elements that are needed are as follows. First, who should the EQA provider be? So generally speaking, it would be very uh, bizarre in other economic sectors if quality was outsourced to another organization. How does a Ministry of Health know that the diagnostic services that it's overseeing, mandating, and, and, and reviewing are producing quality-assured test results? Well, we invite groups politically to say, who's responsible for quality? And this is generally some part of the Ministry of Health. And if you're responsible for that, is it within your mandate to oversee quality directly by being an EQA provider? And usually they say yes. 
But the complication of doing that is enormous. So what we did is we deconstructed all of the elements that are needed to run a sustainable EQA program. So we look and we say, if you need the technology, and they all do, I can't tell you how many countries are trying to run national EQA programs on Excel spreadsheets. Um, so we have an informatics system that is a multi-tenant system that gives them the ability to manage their own EQA while having any sort of sample they want. So that's the informatics system. We work within budgets to say what's affordable so that everybody can contribute a bit to make a system available as a common resource. Dan, thanks so much for that. But, and, and I'm glad you addressed um, the costs and, um, and, and all the processes, but I'm just wondering if we can drill down that on that just a little bit more in terms of when you're working with developing countries to ensure that, I know you've worked with them in terms of setting it all up, but to ensure that it is properly, the EQA practices is properly, properly implemented. And also in terms of the challenges of pay and what adjustments um, has to be made to ensure that laboratories can pay for this. Like, how do you, how do you address those challenges? From a public health perspective, um, one can make the business case to fund EQA centrally so that the, the cost of quality is reflected in the cost of the diagnostic, okay? In countries where, where uh, the cost is passed on to the laboratory, then, then you face typically in resource-limited settings a challenge because a, a, a quality manager or a laboratory director is facing real operational concerns to keep their labs going. And so they would like to throw away EQA if they can't afford it. Okay, so that tends to sort of generate a bit of a conflict because, because they should willingly want to participate in it, but it ought not to come at the consequence of, um, you know, of, of them running a good laboratory. So I was, when I was invited to join the Nigerian National EQA Advisory Board for the Medical Laboratory Science Council of Nigeria, I offered two very simple observations. They said, what should we do EQA on? And if we've got more participants than we have budget, how should we allocate those? And I thought, this is, these are two really fundamentally important questions. So I advocate for a looking at the burden of disease in the country. So what are the disease entities that are making your population die and live shorter, less happy lives? Work on those disease entities first, okay? And generally, in, in most resource-limited countries, we're talking about HIV, tuberculosis, malaria. Now, you know, other non-communicable diseases are killing people as well, but they're, you know, they are uh, like a second order of, of priority. So th they thought that was really interesting. So that guided some of their policy decisions about what EQA to do. Then I just offered a very simple, simple allocation exercise because an EQA program costs the same. I advocate whenever we start in a, in a, in a country, if we can grab a Ministry of Health economist who can then reveal the hidden costs, the real costs 
of diagnostic inaccuracy to help guide the allocation of resources. Dan, I think I think those are great points you're making. You know, I, I was having a conversation with somebody who was indicating diagnostics were four percent of their health budget, and they said, "Well, I said, why is that?" They said, "I have no idea. It's just always been that way." So I I, I do feel that um, the diagnostic sector doesn't necessarily get uh, treated with the same uh, level of analysis as say therapeutic value propositions were. Intuitively, I believe that uh, diagnostics are, are great value for money if quality is not thrown out at the extent, uh, you know, chasing quantity of testing. Uh, and, and maybe it's a, it's a good opportunity to ask um, uh, Danielle a little bit about this. Uh, Danielle, uh, you know, Dan raised this point of, of EQA being a small portion of the healthcare budget. And, you know, what are, what are the costs of not doing it? Is, is something we should look at. What are the costs of those systemic failures that, that could have been prevented? And, you know, how does API ensure the implementation of your work with, with thousands of, of labs, hospitals, and clinics? There have actually been a few public scandals regarding inaccurate results that potentially could have been prevented or limited if proficiency testing was utilized. So in 2008, Ireland launched a national cervical check screening program to screen women for HPV through pap smears. They sent out these smears that were collected on the women to large reference laboratories who reviewed the slides for abnormal cells. Unfortunately, at least 30% of these samples sent to labs over the years were reported out as normal when they're actually abnormal. So these women were actually suffering from cervical cancer and were not being informed or treated in a timely manner. When caught early, cervical cancer is highly treatable, but obviously a lot of these women did not get it caught early and it really created a public scandal in Ireland. Uh, later when they were investigating this, they found that the laboratory's false negative results could have actually been limited had they ensured that all personnel testing were competent and their proficiency testing results were accurate. Investigations found that the program did not actually ensure the hospitals they were contracting work with held high enough quality standards, meaning they didn't ensure that they adhered to good uh, laboratory practice of their proficiency testing, uh, quality control, or competency standards. So another testing issue was with actually blood lead screening that's routinely performed on children. So there's a device called the Magellan Lead Care Blood Test that's used in many pediatric offices to both screen and test children who are suspected for lead exposure and just a general screening protocol. These tests were actually obtaining falsely low results, meaning that some children were potentially not being diagnosed with lead poisoning and not receiving necessary treatment. Eventually, Magellan and the FDA recalled several test kits in 2021 and providers who had used these test kits were instructed to retest children who were considered at risk. So API actually provides a proficiency test specifically for this kit. And in late 2020 and early 2021, we saw an increased number of labs reporting falsely low results on these higher targeted blood lead samples. So we informed Magellan of the increase in false negative results we were seeing, which we actually believe helped to initiate the company's investigation and subsequent recall. So it's important to note, and Heidi and Dan both mentioned this earlier, when developing proficiency programs, you strive to make samples that are as close in material as possible to patient samples. Our business. Yep. 
So, so when proficiency testing is done correctly, these unacceptable results can be found in a timely manner, investigated, and corrections can be made to actually limit patient harm long term. Heidi, I just want to go back to something that you spoke about earlier, uh, talking about uh, some of the challenges working within the EU for lab quality. I'm wondering, in terms of regulations overall, does that impact EQA and the services that you provide? Is, is there a standard then across the EU? And if not, then what challenges does that provide? Right. So, as I mentioned, the, uh, the use of uh, EQA in clinical laboratories is largely guided by the ISO 15189 standard. And, and through this, we actually find the common EQA processes in different countries. But in addition to this, as mentioned, the countries may have different guidelines. And, and for some countries, it might be that um, there must be a certain frequency in the number of rounds or distributions per year, or... Um, there must be a certain uh, number of samples per dis distribution, or it might be mandatory to participate in a national EQA scheme. So just to mention some of the differences we see in different countries. So uh, I would say that there is really not uh, uh, one model that fits all because there are many factors that play a role in setting the optimal process to get the most benefit out of EQA. So when working internationally, this naturally sets a number of demands on us as an EQA provider. And, and our goal is to be flexible, a flexible partner for clinical laboratories and point of care testing sites so that they can adjust their participation according to the, the demands of the ISO standard, the national guidelines, the quality management of their own organization and locally also for the individual sites. So I would say that our role is to advise and assist the laboratories to improve and maintain their quality. And, and we also find it important to include educational EQA. And this we do especially in the EQA for the pre-analytical phase. That's great. Thank you, Heidi. Dan, we, we've talked a little bit now about the United States and the EU. What about uh, challenges concerning standards in, in Canada, for example, and, and in less developed nations? The first challenge is to create a quality of a culture of quality. Why are you even doing EQA? And I can tell you that um, when laboratories perceive that participation in a program will can have adverse impact, then they'll do whatever they can, including you know collude with others to avoid that. So what you want to have is an educationally oriented program. You want them to engage in the process and they want to use, you want to perceive a problem that EQA reveals as an opportunity for improvement. Yes, I, I completely agree with this, with what has been said. And, and I think that we need to provide high quality EQA schemes that are really cl clinically relevant for the lab laboratories and the point of care testing sites. And, and most important is to have the high quality samples of different levels or, or contents, depending on what type of scheme it is. And working internationally uh, and having clients almost on every continent, this sets several criteria on the sample material. And, and one, of, of course, is that it needs to be stable enough to be shipped yeah. to different countries, in addition that it needs to be safe and easy to handle, etc. And uh, another challenge is that our clients have different needs, as Dan already pointed out. And, 
And the needs are different also in regards to EQA. So at one end, we have the large laboratory organizations with several analyzer units and perhaps several satellite laboratories that want to have a high frequency in EQA and they want to have very specific information about their EQA results and the performance. And, and this can nowadays be achieved thanks to good electronic platforms. Uh, ours is called LabScala. And then at the other end, uh, we have the point of care test users uh, who mostly want to sample at a lesser frequency and, and they actually often want a minimal amount of information in the report. So they want to know if they failed or if they passed. Danielle, just to turn to the United States now, we've just heard Heidi and, and Dan talk about challenges that they're experiencing with regards to some of the regulations and guidelines in the United States. Um, could you elaborate on the differences between those and, and some of the concerns or, 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 or special challenges that you experience there in the United States and the impact of those regulations and guidelines? So, you know, CLIA is a little different um, in how it requires laboratories to participate. It, it's not nearly as flexible and it, it doesn't really allow for much a la carte type choosing of PT. So they are required to perform proficiency testing at scheduled intervals per year. Normally it's three times, um, but again, not every analyte is covered. So laboratories can pick and choose whether they want to do proficiency on an analyte or not. That doesn't mean that we don't offer proficiency testing for each analyte, but it means that sometimes laboratories are not performing PT and really maybe they should be. So it's still best practice to really do some sort of external quality assessment for all tests performed in the laboratory. But like Dan mentioned and Heidi mentioned, this really becomes time consuming and expensive. So it is ultimately up to the laboratory whether they want to do this. So earlier I mentioned that wave complexity tests don't actually require proficiency testing and typically have non-clinical personnel performing the testing. So without that educational background for troubleshooting results, the lack of external assessment of accuracy creates a significant risk for incorrect patient reporting. In terms of guidelines that are expected for laboratories, this can really vary significantly depending on their accreditation agency. So we have overall guidelines that are mandated by CLIA, and then there are several different accreditation agencies that enforce these guidelines. So each agency has different expectations that laboratories must adhere to in order to keep their accreditation and remain in good standing with the government bodies. Fascinating to me that some um, uh, EQAPT can be optional for different analytes still. Um, you know, what we see uh, now in terms of some of the point here is that uh, the inclusion of, of onboarding training programs and the inclusion at fixed ratios of positive controls and repair tests to attempt to get uh, the right level of control around those. But I'd like to, uh, I'd like to turn over to Dan to uh, talk about uh, your views, Dan, on future trends in terms of EQA and where, where that may go with some of the, the emerging challenges we see things like uh, AMR, antimicrobial resistance, um, when pathogens no longer respond to medicines and, um, you know, the, some of the global threats re regarding that or, or future pandemics, God forbid. Right. Well, um, let me start with, 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 with AMR and what we're doing there. So um, we've collaborated with the University of British Columbia for many, many years. And 
they have a program where they would bring they would bring lab scientists, EQA providers to Vancouver to their laboratory and train them on how to make uh, simulated bacteriology samples. And because they don't have the, their own informatics system, they would invite us. And then two, three months would go by and I'd get a call. I'd say, have you heard back from the group? I said, no, I was going to ask you. So they would receive the training, but there was no evidence that it turned into making panels for EQA programs. So we sat down and deconstructed the problems with that and, and came up with what we call the EQA sample production program to train countries to make EQA providers to make about six different types of, of, of simulated bacteriology samples. Well, what was the problem we were trying to solve? The problem was, while we can provide bacteriology samples to countries, they're lyophilized. And so, so the first thing, they don't look like, um, as Heidi mentioned, you know, having samples which mimic the characteristics of patients is an essential, almost first principle, really, of EQA. So in a, in a, in a micro lab, you don't, you don't, you don't reconstitute your, your bacteriology samples. So they don't look like patient samples and they don't really behave like patient samples. And I want to turn to Heidi and get um, your final thoughts in terms of where you see proficiency testing in the next five to 10 years. Uh, well, I do believe that EQA still will have an important role in the quality management of clinical laboratories and poetry care sites. And, and maybe... Uh, I would hope to see that the process will be more automated so that the EQA samples would actually go with the normal flow of patient samples, both when analyzing and also regarding the results. And, and to make this possible, LabQuality has made a service uh, for direct integration available where the laboratory information system can be integrated to our electronic platform, LabScala, so that there is no need to report the EQA results manually anymore. Then if we think about the uh, IBD regulation that is already applicable with the transition period ending, at least for the time being, in May of, of 2027, I would say that the role of EQA might increase. The IBD uh, regulation requires that IBD manufacturers must evaluate the performance of their devices throughout the life cycle of the device. And here, EQA and proficiency testing can possibly provide valuable information on the analytical and clinical performance of the devices. And in addition, post-market surveillance requirements of the regulation are, are already applicable for all device classes. And information from EQA and proficiency testing can already be used to fulfill these requirements. And then looking back to, to 2020, as you mentioned, the pandemic, so then we faced COVID-19. and. And we learned that uh, also EQA providers must be ready to respond very quickly to unexpected demands. So at that time, laboratories, they were extremely busy with setting up the analytics for COVID-19. And I'm actually very pleased that uh, they, they were also asking for EQA in this stage. So this goes to show the impact of EQA and that it is important. So what we learned was that thanks to, uh, to our network and, and expertise, we can act very quickly if there is an acute situation. And we also learned that we really need to be prepared for different situations and have our processes well planned so that, so that we can answer to a sudden critical need very quickly. No, very, very good, Heidi. That's certainly the area where we're at, with the microbics focused on helping is to be able to very quickly provide 
those needed samples that are uh, whole process, whole genome, and uh, and very broadly uh, uh, useful for providers. Um, let's shift over to the United States in terms of trends and challenges, and, and maybe Danielle, you can speak to that in terms of uh, what we see emerging as the needs and the challenges with regards to EQA in the United States as a principal area. Mm -hmm. So in the U.S. in the last few years, we've actually seen a huge adoption of laboratory-developed testing being used. So it began before the COVID pandemic, although many laboratories popped up during the pandemic that were using laboratory-developed systems, and now that the pandemic is diminishing, they have excess capacity on their analyzers. So we've been seeing laboratories bring on multiplex testing, which is testing for many different potential pathogens, so sometimes upwards of 40, on an individual sample. So they're bringing on this multiplex testing in areas where commercial testing isn't actually FDA approved yet. And so we've seen requests for things such as UTI panels, nail fungus infections, wound panels, and STIs. So we've actually been creating proficiency programs with the help of Microbics and a few other providers to specifically cater to these facilities' needs so that they can perform the testing. We feel it's vital that they externally validate the accuracy of these test methods because each laboratory can have varying reagents and protocols and they're not FDA cleared. So there is quite a bit of variability in this testing. So we want to ensure that they are getting the most from their proficiency and then in turn using that to guide patient testing. So another area where we're seeing exponential growth is point-of-care testing, and really in the areas of infectious disease and chronic condition monitoring. So emerging technologies and more specific molecular tests are available for SARS, influenza, malaria, lactic acid, and dengue fever are really driving this explosion. There are currently more than 100 point-of-care tests available in the U.S., but not all are widely implemented. Some of these assays, like testing for cancer using proteins found in blood, would be used at more cutting-edge facilities, um, whereas others will take many years before they eventually filter down to the small hospitals or clinics. As the point-of-care testing sites and assays expand, we're going to see a huge surge of testing being done by non-clinical staff. So this is inevitable. Uh, as our healthcare resources have really been stretched thin since the global pandemic, and there is no other option. So in the end, resources and results are going to be available quicker to the patient, but what's the ultimate cost? Danielle, I think that's, that that's a great way for us to start to conclude today, talking about the inevitability of, of point of cares being used more widely, multiplex testing, and molecular diagnostics generally uh, adding to the capability and, and the need to do it right. Um, but that's all the time we have for today. So I'd like to thank you, Daniel Casey from American Proficiency Institute in the U.S., Heidi Bergall from Lab Quality in Finland, and Dan Taylor from One World Accuracy in Vancouver. Um, thank you all for joining us today and this great discussion on the need and the criteria for um, effective EQA and proficiency testing. I'm Cameron Groom. And I'm Janet Silver, and this is Diagnostics Beyond the Lab. Thank you for tuning in. Till next time.